welcome to episode 7 of the Healthcare Hub podcast. Just looking over a brief overview of the type of episodes we've done so far, we've talked to people in hospital administration and community care, pharmaceutical firms and medical devices, and even looked into the sp startup space. So it's been really great the types of speakers we've had so far and really excited to continue on in our second season of the Healthcare Hub and really great to have you on the show here too, Tyler. Oh, I'm happy to be here, Avanav. It's been uh, it's been a cool ride so far. We've uh, had a lot of different adventures along the way, and we've got a lot more to come here. We've got uh, I'm looking at the uh, guests that have agreed to come on in the near future, and they're from a wide variety of backgrounds as well. So the ride doesn't stop here. We're going to keep moving forward. Exactly, and I just wanted to go briefly over our episode right now. I'll first be opening off the episode with our new segment discussing a government contract awarded to Deloitte for creation of a national computer system for COVID vaccine rollout. Then we talk to a guest speaker from Deloitte, Kirsten Kreber, who is a manager for digital care. Finally, Tyler will be closing off the episode talking about Atonics, a platform that specializes in remote patient monitoring and virtual communication for patients. Let's get this episode started. On January 11th, the federal government awarded Deloitte a $16 million contract to build a national computer system to manage the COVID-19 vaccine rollout, called the National Vaccine Management IT Platform. Currently, existing computer systems used to track and manage vaccine distribution across Canada are more focused on yearly flu inoculations or tracking vaccinations for children. Some critics have explained that current tracking methods are extremely diverse and that Canada lacks a centralized vaccine tracking system that would allow governments and policymakers to keep track of who is vaccinated, what vaccines have been used, and where vaccinations have taken place. The National Vaccine Management IT platform from Deloitte will support national visibility and evidence-based decision-making at a federal level. As well, it will support key provincial, territorial, and other key stakeholders in the administration of COVID-19 vaccines by increasing the capabilities of the current operational systems. Some features of the National Vaccine Management Platform include supporting vaccine orders through situational monitoring, supply chain visibility, and functionality for inventory tracking and logistics, being able to gather information from all available public health entities, and provide analytics on vaccine administration. And finally, the ability to manage the immunization administration program at various points in the administration cycle. In the United States, Deloitte's Vaccine Administration Management System is in use at the Centers for Disease Control and, and Prevention. A single source contract from the system was announced last September by the Trump administration. Looking back at Canada, the federal government has not said when it expects Deloitte to have the new system up and running, even though COVID-19 vaccines are already being distributed across the country. So I thought this is a really interesting thing, uh, Deloitte getting involved in supply chain management for the COVID-19 vaccine and also working with the government to make sure uh, this thing is rolled out as efficiently as possible. Wanted to get some of your thoughts on this story, Tyler. Uh, this is a int really interesting, especially uh, it's sad we weren't able to talk to Kirsten about this because it was released after our interview, but a really cool project Deloitte is currently working on. Yeah, one thing you brought up that's really interesting is the uh, the tracking aspect of what Deloitte is expected to, to do here. I know Justin Trudeau said the other day that he does not want to do any kind of vaccine passport to check if people have a vaccine before they enter events or anything. So with regards to tracking, it's going to be interesting to see how much of a priority that is as opposed to getting just getting the vaccine out there and how that tracking system is going to be used. They also, there's also the issue of will they be developing their own vaccine tracking system from scratch or can they leverage a, a technology that's already out there, whether from a startup or another organization that's developed something that can do that uh, to see where they, where they come up with this digital platform that tracks the vaccines. And I know that that's very much required because during our current work term for our MBA program, I needed to uh, talk about my or give record of my immunizations to my employer to start work. And it was so hard to track down these immunizations. I had to go to my family doctor. I had to talk to my regional health authority. I had to find immunization documents from when I was a kid. 
So overall, tracking these vaccines has never been something that's been done in a super organized way. So maybe the, if uh, something that's p- is put in place here that allows the government to track these vaccines holistically at a federal level, it could be interesting to see how that's utilized going forward even after the pandemic for future vaccinations or vaccinations that are already put in place, how they get implemented into this system. So uh, yeah, going forward, it's gonna be interesting to see how this tracking system is utilized. Yeah, that's a great point, Tyler. And I think we can all relate to those yellow immunization cards we might have used exactly. when we were kids. Uh, but yeah, and the system here, it seems that it's, um, it's tackling the issue at multiple fronts. One, being able to track the supply chain of the vaccines itself, then also being able to track who has got the vaccines, which is also an important question. Uh, and it, it's an important question to ask in general. I think everyone's kind of interested in knowing, will it show on our health card that we've got the vaccine? Will we be given a pass that will allow us to show others that we've got the vaccine? It's all interesting questions and something I'm sure the government will uh, give citizens more information on in the future. I just wanted to close off this segment a little bit on where our current vaccine dissemination is right now. Uh, I think recently in the news, there were some delays with the Pfizer vaccine uh, reducing down to half. And uh, currently, there has been some pressure on the government to ensure that they meet their deadlines for making sure that everyone who wants a vaccine by September is able to get one. Ottawa currently says they've given 548,000 doses to provinces uh, and territories as of last Thursday. And now individual provinces are responsible for actually getting those shots into Canadian arms and reporting on those inoculations. Uh, Interestingly enough, today in the morning when I woke up and saw the news, there was an announcement that all long-term care homes have been completely vaccinated in the Toronto area. So it's nice to see these kind of news uh, come out uh, and something we'll keep track of. And I know it's something everyone wants to hear more about. And with that, thank you for listening to the new segment of the Healthcare Hub podcast. Kirsten Kreber is an alumna of McMaster University with both an honors undergraduate degree in psychology, neuroscience, and behavior, and an MBA from the DeGroote School of Business. After graduating, Kirsten joined Deloitte's health transformation team as a consultant. Since then, she has worked her way up through various roles and is now a manager for digital digital care at Deloitte. Welcome to the Healthcare Hub, Kirsten. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Yeah, we imagine it is a uh, it's a pretty busy time uh, during the holiday season. I don't I don't know if you got a little bit of a break there for the holidays, but getting right back in the swing of things now for the new year. Yes, it's a great way to start the new year talking to both of you. But uh, I did get a little bit of a break, so it was nice. The firm gave us a couple weeks off to kind of rest and recharge and hit twenty twenty one running. Oh, perfect. Okay. So we are going to start off with getting a little bit of background on your education. So during your undergraduate education at at McMaster, you did a lot of scientific research in the multisensory perception lab and social development and autism lab at McMaster, and as well as the anxiety treatment and research clinic at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton. Mm -hmm. Was there something that dawned on you while performing all that research that pushed you to pursue an MBA or how did you end up at DeGroot after your undergrad? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, as you mentioned, I did my undergrad in psychology, neuroscience and behavior. And um, despite selecting my major when I was 16, not because I'm particularly intelligent, simply because I'm born late in the year and I applied for early acceptance. Um, But despite that, I actually quite loved it. I loved the coursework. I loved all the studies we learned about. And so I thought I was going to pursue a career in research. So in my third and fourth year, I did a lot of work in labs. So I did my thesis in the multisensory perception lab. I did an independent study in cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, I worked in the social development and autism lab on campus, as well as in the anxiety treatment and research center at St. Joe's. And despite, you know, really enjoying these experiences and meeting just wildly intelligent and influential people, um, it became kind of apparent to me that research wasn't really a good fit for me, particularly kind of long-term if I thought about my career. But what also became apparent when I graduated and didn't pursue a graduate degree in research was that a degree in neuroscience did not really prepare me or provide me with a lot of skills in the professional world. Um, So I was kind of left figuring out what to do with my life and what I wanted to be when I grew up. I knew I wanted to stay in the health space, but I didn't know really what that meant if I wasn't in research and if I didn't have kind of the stomach or the capabilities to be a clinician. 
Um, and that's kind of why I decided to pursue my MBA at McMaster because the you know, group program allows you to specialize in the health services management, which is the area I wanted to focus in. Uh, but it also allowed the, you know, the three co-op opportunities during your term. So not only would I you know, be able to get some work experience and build up a bit of a resume, but it would um, you know, really allow me to figure out where in the health sector I wanted to kind of play and where I, what I liked and what I didn't like and kind of where I wanted to end up. Um, and I can also say that going to DeGroote was uh, one of the smartest decisions I've made in my career. It's uh, worked out quite well for me. Yeah, that's very relatable, I think, for Tyler and I, especially we both have a background in research and uh, excited now in our MBA, we're learning all these different uh, tool skills and things we add to our toolkit. So mm -hmm. we see that uh, during your MBA, you specialized in the health services management. Mm -hmm. And uh, were there any specific courses that you found particularly applicable moving forward in your career and useful knowledge you have uh, picked up from that specialization? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, the specialization helped in a lot of ways, but from a specific course perspective, the one that always stood out for me was uh, it was health quality and performance taught by Mike Heenan, who at the time was at St. Joe's. Um, and I found it particularly helpful. I'm not sure if it's still a course that's offered, but I found it particularly helpful because it was it wasn't really run in the typical university course format. It was very much applicable to the real kind of industry out there. So for instance, there would be a new kind of publication come out or a new policy released by the ministry. And Professor Heenan would have, he would give it to us and then ask us to um, come up with a summary that he could provide theoretically to his CEO. He said that that's a job he has to do on a regular basis. So this is something if you want to be a VP of a hospital, you'll have to figure out. Um, so I just found the coursework in general very applicable to kind of the real industry. Um, and that's one that always kind of stood out in my mind. So if it is still offered, I would recommend it. Yeah, that's definitely good news. We'd love to <laughs> love to see that there's a good smorgasbord of tools that you can pick up, whether through the work experience or the courses or the extracurriculars or everything. Mm -hmm. So you brought up that you went to McMaster. Uh, co-op was something that attracted you to the program and you had three co-op placements. So they were in Cancer Care Ontario, Deloitte and Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. So between those three experiences, how would you compare uh, what you learned in kind of the public healthcare setting or the versus more, the more corporate world of Deloitte or how did the, uh, the work environment differ between them? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. Um, so my entire strategy of the three co-ops was to do three completely different things in the health sector. I thought that it'd be best to get a broad range of experiences, not only so I can understand what I like and what I don't like, but I also thought that, you know, having a broad and a base level understanding of different corners of the industry would help inform whichever path I chose later on. And really when will you ever have an opportunity to have three different jobs in a year and a half? Um, so I thought I'd take full advantage of it. So um, as you mentioned, I did one kind of in the uh, provincial planning space at Cancer Care Ontario. And it was my first co-op and it provided me with a really great kind of foundational understanding of the health industry and how it's structured in the province, what the different kind of bodies are, who the players are. Uh, so it was really helpful from a kind of foundational understanding perspective. Um, then when I did my second placement at Deloitte, to be honest with you, I never really thought I would do a placement in the private sector. I never really thought about consulting as a career choice for myself. Um, but I took the approach of blanket apply everywhere and see kind of what sticks. And um, I ended up getting an offer from Deloitte, so I took it. And it was a completely different side of the industry than what I had experienced at Cancer Care. Um, it was much more fast paced. It was much more broad in the sense that there, we would do everything from kind of strategy through operations through to implementation. Whereas at Cancer Care, I was very much focused in the planning sector of it. So it was much more broad. Um, and then I did my third placement at Mount Sinai in, I think it was technically called Corporate and Strategic Projects. But effectively, I was working for the CEO at the time, Joe Mappa, and he had a variety of different initiatives he wanted us to focus on. Um, so I was doing a lot of kind of closer to the frontline type of work. So hospital operations, um, you know, very kind of tangible, specific things that w were going on within the hospital at the time. Um, so it was three really different experiences, which I think if you are currently going through a McMaster in the co-op program, I'd highly recommend doing that. Uh, I always thought personally that I would end up at a hospital doing something more um, close to the front lines. But through these experiences, it really kind of drew me towards the consulting side of it. 
uh, which as I mentioned, isn't something I really ever thought of doing. Um, so getting kind of a broad range like that, I think can really you know, open your eyes to not only kind of the different aspects that are possible from a health services management you know, career, but also what you really like and what you really don't like. So use this time to really kind of explore that <clears throat> and it'll help kind of inform where you want to start building your career when you graduate. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that you uh, had no intention of going into consulting and just kind of applied there because when you're in business, uh, when you're studying business, whether undergrad or doing your MBA, it seems like such a large portion of people in business are just, oh yeah, I'll do consulting after I graduate. Oh, I'll do consulting. It seems like a very go-to uh, you know, career that everyone's looking at. So it's funny that you just uh, <laughs> threw an application out there and ended up in it. Yeah. So that, that co-op placement ended up uh, seeming to be your pathway to get your foot in the door at Deloitte for your post-graduation role. Mm -hmm. But getting that first placement can obviously be very tough. Uh, what did you feel was the most effective way to attain that sort of role? Did you think, like, did you just see a, a job posting and apply to it? Or was there a lot of networking involved or specific things you did on your resume and cover letter? What was the, the key there? Yeah, it's a really great question. I mean, when I get asked kind of a fair amount of, mm -hmm. of students, um, I'd say I'm not the best example. I, I did just kind of apply to a posting. I would say that for me, I think what made me stand out was I really found a way to translate my experiences in research and my volunteer work and all that type of you know, good stuff into a consulting role. So while you may not have directly, you know, quote unquote, applicable experience, it, it's very possible to take your past experiences and then think about how that would translate to a consulting position and what you know, advantages that provides you with. So I think for me, that was something I was able to do um, fairly successfully to you know, obtain that internship position. However, I would very much recommend that you, you do do some networking in advance. Um, even if you don't have a formal networking event to attend, I respond to a lot of messages on LinkedIn. There's a lot of DeGroote uh, alum within the kind of health team at Deloitte and that other, you know, big four firms, if that's what you're interested in. And everyone is usually very, very willing to help out. So I would really recommend, you know, you reach out, even if it's just a cold LinkedIn message. Um, if you happen to have connections that have other connections, whatever route you're able to take um, and chat with some folks within the consulting space. I think it'll, you know, not only help you make those connections and then you'll be able to, you know, it helps you get a foot in the door, if you will, but uh, it'll also help you get a better understanding of really what consulting is. I find it can definitely be a bit of a black box and, you know, very few people really know what consulting is. So having those conversations and having, you know, many of them will give you, you know, several different perspectives and give you a bit better of an understanding of, you know, the day-to-day -day life of what a consultant is. Um, so yes, I don't think I have a great answer for that one because I did just kind of apply, but don't follow my lead on that one. I mean, I think Tyler and I have been shooting out a lot of applications for our co-op terms, so we understand <laughs> how it is. Um, so it's interesting, I mean, you mentioned uh, using your past experiences, even if they're in research or volunteering and really applying that to consulting is important. And I think in a career building in general, any work you've done in the past, you just have to be able to show what skills you've learned and how that translate and translates into a new role. And I think that's great advice. I just wanted to know maybe at a skills uh, level, are there specific skills that make, might make someone a strong candidate to work in consulting and as in consulting and are these skills changing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think that the, well, there are certain tangible skills that are, of course, helpful, you know, understanding of Excel, ability to, you know, build a PowerPoint story. I'd say that the majority of skills that we look for when thinking about someone that would make a good consultant are really the soft skills. And I think that's really where, you know, students should focus when they're doing their applications. Um, I think that you can, you know, for lack of a better term, you can kind of teach someone the hard skills you need to learn. You can teach someone how to build a storyboard. You can teach someone how to kind of pivot their data in a way that's meaningful, but you can't teach people, or it's much more difficult to teach people the kind of core soft skills that would be helpful. So a few that come to mind, um, the first is, you know, 
teamwork, just the ability to play well with others. So we, every single thing we do as consultants is on a team, not only within the firm, but you're also working with your clients and your client teams. Um, and so the ability to kind of work with others very well, to adapt to different leadership styles, um, to accommodate each other is really, really key. So highlighting that in any way that you can, and I'm sure we've all done a thousand school projects at a minimum, let alone other teams you've worked on, um, would definitely be a skill to highlight. Um, being a fast learner is a big one as well. Um, so I've never done the same project twice in my five years at the firm. Uh, we do everything, as I mentioned, from strategy to operations to data and analytics to tech implementations and kind of everything in between. So the ability to get a new project, a new client, a new engagement and kind of pick up quickly and you know, learn fast is definitely a, a skill. Um, and not only the ability to do it, but really the passion for it, you know, being someone that really is passionate about learning and continuously learning new things is something that's, you know, really important in consulting as well. Um, the ability to deal with ambiguity, I think you hear this a lot when you think about consulting, but, you know, this is a big challenge for me specifically when I came in because I like things that are very tangible, very specific, very clear in that just never happens in the consulting world. Um, you're often dealing with problems that are not very well defined, things are very murky, you're often the first to even try to address it. So the ability to kind of deal with that ambiguity and try to put some structure around it and thrive in that type of environment is something that's really helpful. Um, I think the ability to take constructive criticism and feedback and kind of incorporate it well. Um, so this is like a big part of consulting culture is, you know, continuous improvement, continuous learning, you know, providing opportunities for growth. And in my opinion, it's one of the kind of the best components of it. It really helps accelerate your career. Um, and it's very easy, um, at least I think, to, to kind of take that negatively at times. Um, it can be hard to constantly hear, yeah, that was great, you know, but here's how you could do it better. Here's something you should think about next time. Um, so the ability to kind of take that feedback and continuously iterate on it and turn it into something you know, positive and constructive for yourself, I think is a big skill. Um, and then the last is not surprising, but really just hardworking. It, is very unsurprising that, you know, consulting hours can be, you know, they can be long, you can have very challenging projects, um, be working with a variety of, you know, often at times challenging individuals. Um, and so the ability to not only kind of get through that and work hard and sometimes the long hours, but really thrive in that type of environment, I think is something that um, is, should not be overlooked either. So I think there's kind of a broad range of soft skills that I would really try to highlight um, and really try to focus on when you're doing your interviews or your applications. And I think uh, they're, you know, more, they're more critical than some of the more tangible hard skills that some folks can tend to focus on. Yeah, I'd say that that constantly changing atmosphere is definitely the uh, definite uh, like a challenge of consulting, but also one of the things that's most attractive about it, just having that fresh start all the time. So one thing you brought up uh, during that was the different functional areas that are tied into your role. So you hopped right into health transformation uh, in both your co-op and your, your role out of graduation. Mm -hmm. But with so many functional areas tied in, would you say your role is really industry specific and you're just tying in? A whole bunch of different functional areas or do you have a narrow set of functional areas that you tend to stick to in your role? Yeah it's a good question um, and the structure of Deloitte can be very uh, confusing for sure. Um, so our team was when I originally joined it called the health transformation team. It has since uh, kind of evolved into what is now called the digital care team. I will say it is a little bit of a misnomer and that we do do work outside of just the digital health space. So we do do things such as, you know, health system strategy. Um, we do things around clinical services planning. So there's definitely work outside of the digital space, but that is our name. Um, for the most part, we are industry focused. So very much working within the health and life sciences space. Um, we do have kind of a set of uh, services, if you will, that we offer within that. But they're, you know, not set in stone. They're all kind of mishmashed. Um, and, you know, ultimately, we're there to serve our clients and what their needs are. It's just a way to try to communicate um, outside the firm of what are the types of, you know, services and work that can be done. Um, so I'd say that, you know, the team as a whole is very specific um, to the industry, not necessarily to, you know, specific functions. However, within the health team, folks tend to kind of gravitate towards specific services throughout their career, um, particularly once you hit kind of the manager level, which is where I'm at. 
and above, uh, you tend to kind of become a bit more of a uh, expert or specialist, if you will, within certain you know, functional areas within that. So for instance, we have some folks that are you know, very focused on the health information system space, and that's where the majority of their work resides, and they are very much kind of experts in that area, although they sit on a broader team that's focused on the health industry. Does that kind of answer your question a little bit? Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's, uh, I think when you, when you look into uh, the whole health transformation and digital care area at Deloitte, it can get a little fuzzy looking in from the outside. For sure. Externally. <laughs> so just got, kind of clarifying that organizational structure is interesting. Mm -hmm. I guess one thing I'm wondering about working at Detroit, or sorry, not Detroit, Deloitte, uh, would be uh, that it's such a multinational firm that operates in so many different countries. Hmm. So when there's big projects like that, say in the US, does that have any influence over things that you're doing here? Or is there any interchangeability or, or processes that you're moving across the different countries or are they working pretty independently? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it's definitely one of the advantages of working for such a large global professional services firm is that we have kind of contacts, contacts, sorry, and lessons learned and thought leadership uh, that we're able to pull from all across the globe. So I'd say that there certainly is uh, communication and kind of collaboration with other member firms in the US and the UK and, you know, even all the way to Australia. Um, we definitely do a lot of kind of collaboration and try to understand what the other firms are doing, specific projects that they have on the go, if there's any way we can kind of contribute to them, if we can pull lessons learned back to our clients. So there's definitely that ongoing kind of back and forth between the member firms. Um, we do it regularly, I think, from like a leadership perspective. They have regular meetings to discuss those types of things. Uh, but we also do it for our specific engagements. If there's a specific piece of content or thought leadership or you just need an expert advice, we regularly kind of reach across to kind of get that input. Um, I would say that, you know, our team specifically works primarily within Canada. We do do international work at times. We have been pulled into Australia and we have done some work in the U.S., uh, but you know, we primarily do focus in Canada because of kind of the regional nature of the healthcare system and the differences between the different kind of nations in that. Um, however, if, you know, working across borders is something that's of particular interest to you, there's a plethora of opportunities at a firm kind of as large as Deloitte. Um, for instance, there's an opportunity to just get on kind of a one-time project. If you just wanted to do one specific type of work uh, somewhere, you can absolutely kind of put your hand up and try to cross-border for a specific work, uh, specific engagement rather. Um, there's also the opportunity to do a secondment to another firm. So we've had folks that have done uh, two-year secondments to the UK firm. We've had folks that have gone to the Australia firm. We've had folks that transferred to uh, the Boston office, for instance. So there's definitely an option to, you know, do a bit more of a permanent, not permanent, but, you know, longer-term placement in another uh, office in another country should you want to get that experience as well. Um, so there's definitely an opportunity to kind of work internationally, but I'd say on a regular basis, we do kind of collaborate very regularly with the other member firms um, just to try to serve our clients as best as we can and really try to advance the sector as much as possible. So within Canada, would it be between different provinces? Is that just kind of a project by project basis? Like the healthcare organization from one province might order a project and, or is, I guess, yeah, what I'm asking is, are, are, is, does, is Deloitte split between provinces at all or are there different teams that work on different provinces or is it just Deloitte Canada works on projects all over the place? Yeah, uh, we are a national team. So we are very much a Deloitte Canada digital care team. We do have folks that sit in different offices. So there's folks in Vancouver, there's folks out on the East Coast, obviously there's a bunch of us in Toronto. Um, so we do have folks that kind of sit across the country, but we are very much kind of one national team. And so depending kind of on the, on the project, that is how we will kind of staff it with the individuals that best meet the needs of the client and have the required experience. Um, it's, we don't kind of decide, oh, it's a you know, Vancouver project, therefore the folks sitting in Vancouver have to do it. It's very much just who is the best fit for it. Um, and we very much treat it as kind of one national team. I think that's really interesting working in a national team as well as mentioning uh, 
working with thought leaders and also other other consulting firms to really get as much as knowledge as you can. And I think especially in the healthcare uh, space, Tyler and I over the course of the podcast have learned about new startups that have been trying to bring new innovations into the healthcare space. As someone working in healthcare transformation, how do you stay up to date on new products that might be beneficial to potential clients? And are these products something that uh, Deloitte creates in-house or uh, are they often uh, uh, acquired by third-party producers of some type of technology, for example? Yeah, super great question. Um, so staying up to date is, I will not lie, a challenge for sure. So trying to find time and then, you know, the correct uh, channels for understanding what is kind of top of mind for not only the sector, but your specific clients that you're working with. Um, I'd say that Deloitte itself has a lot of really great um, distribution lists and materials and portals where you can kind of access that. We have an entire global center for health solutions that posts a lot of stuff. Excuse me, we have different mailing lists that you can get on that keeps you up to date from, you know, a provincial policy perspective, um, from a technology perspective. So the firm really does try to, um, you know, keep everyone as informed and in the loop as possible. Uh, I'm very much on, I'm probably on every mailing list I could possibly get on. <laughs> I spend a lot of my time uh, just trying to research and keep up to date with it for sure. Um, but really the best way is just through your connections. Um, so a lot of folks that have either kind of exited the firm or I've met through networking or from clients have ended up at, you know, different in different spaces within the health sector and some are at, you know, tech startups, um, some are, you know, within um, pharma agencies or whatever it may be. And they are often the best folks to tell you kind of what's, you know, top of mind for them. And, oh, have you heard about this? So I'd say that your network is really the best way to try to try to keep up to date with what's happening. Um, the firm does have a lot of partnerships with kind of health startups and vendors um, and kind of private players. Uh, so if you think about different health information systems, if you think about, you know, different apps that you may use, things like that. Um, so the firm has definitely partnerships with kind of third parties. Um, but the firm also does develop certain solutions in-house um, that we use to serve our clients with as well. And there's usually specific teams that are kind of responsible for those solutions um, in the end-to-end -end of it. So it's a mix of both, if that answers your question. Yeah, no, that's definitely interesting. Uh, so just moving on to your role at Deloitte. So you started off, obviously, in that co-op role. And then you moved on to consultant, senior consultant, chief of staff manager. How would you say your day-to-day -day of the role changed from your first role to where you are now? Yeah, um, I guess I really have grown up at the firm, actually, now that you say it like that, <laughs> from the analyst all the way to manager. Um, so I will say that it is quite a flat organization. So from analyst to partners, only five steps which is pretty bananas, but it's quite flat, which really means that there's lots of opportunity to put your hand up, to take on more, uh, to move up, if that is something that you're interested in. Um, really all levels and in all my levels, you will be you know, heavily involved in client work. So as an analyst, not only was I on a client project and attending client meetings, but I was presenting, I was asking questions, and I was very much encouraged and to be honest, kind of required to contribute in a meaningful way. Um, and I think that's one of the great things about the firm is that, you know, no matter what level you're at, you're very much involved and you aren't just kind of in the background doing the analysis or putting together the documents. You're very much kind of at the front and you're expected to be contributing kind of meaningfully to client discussions and presentations and all that good stuff. Um, so I'd say that as I've kind of moved up within the firm, the scope of what I am focused on just expands in the easiest sense of it. So instead of focusing on kind of one specific client project, you know, you eventually start thinking about the client overall, what's their situation, what keeps them up at night, how can we help them kind of more broadly pass this one engagement. Um, instead of thinking about kind of your specific project team, you're now thinking more broadly about the entire health team, uh, everyone across the country, you know, from a talent perspective. So as I've kind of moved up, while the kind of core pieces of consulting are always there um, and you really start building that foundation from day one, no matter what level you're at, your kind of focus expands as you kind of move up throughout the ranks, I suppose. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Uh, the, the role would change over time. And one thing that was the uh, 
<laughs> so obviously working from home uh, would have been a little bit of a change there. But overall, how did uh, how did your role change as a result of the pandemic? Like, did the demand for healthcare projects change for the the better or the worse, or was there any sort certain area that that was of more emphasis after the pandemic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say that. Uh... Demand definitely went up. It was quite a busy year, which is a good problem to have for sure. Um, but there is kind of specific pieces that really took up most of our time. Um, I said the first piece is really, unsurprisingly, COVID-related projects. So from the beginning of the pandemic uh, all the way till now, we've been engaged to support the COVID response um, at the provincial level, at the individual organizational level. So we were pulled in to help with supply chain. We helped with capacity and bed planning. Uh, There was a lot of kind of data and analytics and contact tracing and all that type of stuff that we've heard about that we supported. Um, So one of the big, obviously, shifts from COVID was that we focused a lot on COVID-related engagements, um, which was really great. It was, you know, um, obviously COVID was, is continuing to be, you know, a tragedy. um, And to be able to participate and support our response is really, we had a director call it the, the Super Bowl of health consulting um, and to be invited to play was, you know, really something and to have an impact even in any way on the response is, you know, is really why we do what we do. So um, that was really the first piece was really around COVID response. Um, the second piece was around kind of thought leadership. We post, we publish rather a lot of kind of thought leadership and insights and perspectives on kind of where the industry is going. And so a lot of our work where a lot of our time was also spent, you know, thinking about where the future of the industry is going, you know, how best to respond to the pandemic, not only within the health sector, but within other sectors as well. So what does the future of work look like? And what does the future of the hospital look like? And do we even do care within the four walls anymore? Um, so it really shifted our thinking and we spent a lot of time uh, kind of publishing thought leadership to the industry and other industries um, on, you know, direction setting and um, insights and things like that. Um, which is kind of the third piece, which is really around COVID really accelerated the need for transformation in the industry. Um, I think that's quite apparent. And um, there's really a need for, you know, for instance, enhanced use of technology. So for so long, doing virtual care was such a challenge uh, in Ontario and in Canada in many, in many instances. And uh, COVID really accelerated the need to, you know, be able to do that and be able to do that efficiently and safely for everyone involved. Um, obviously, there was a need for, you know, further health system integration and integrating data sources so everyone understands what's happening. Um, you know, a shift to focusing more on population health and preventative care and care in the community and wellness versus kind of the reactive acute care that we, you know, tend to focus on within the four walls of the hospital. Um, and really thinking about the future of the hospital and what happens in the four walls and how are we delivering care. So it really, you know, accelerated the need for transformation kind of across the entire industry, which I think impacted our work in the sense of when we think about what the future of health consulting is and how we can best serve our clients in the industry, COVID really impacted where we, you know, see the future going short term and long term. So really rethinking how we as a firm can really play and contribute to that. Um, all of this while doing our current engagements that we were working on before COVID. So while some were, of course, put on pause to to address, you know, COVID, several of them couldn't be. So several large scale, scale sorry, tech implementations that had deadlines and were, you know, well down the road, we kept running with um, and we just kept arriving and, you know, solving those problems for our clients while also dealing with the COVID response. So, it was certainly this year for uh, for the industry and for health consulting, but uh, as I mentioned, it was it was really you know not to sound cliche or cheesy, it was really you know an honor and very humbling to be able to help the industry and you know clients and really make an impact to citizens of Ontario and Canada during such a critical time. Yeah, I think it's really interesting reading the Deloitte's Insight report. Uh, they mention. Uh, some of the expected trends to happen in both the private and public side. And I was interested to know your work at Deloitte. Uh, What is the split between your public and private clients? And do you expect this split to change in the future and the workload from each uh, kind of space? Yeah, it's a great question. I would say that on our specific team, the digital care team, the majority, the vast majority of our work is really with public sector clients. Um, So with, you know, provincial health agencies with um, hospitals, community care organizations, really, I'd say the vast majority is within the public space. 
that's not to say that Deloitte in general doesn't do work within the private health space. So we do do work with kind of pharma, um, life sciences players, that type of thing. But our team specifically tends to focus more um, on public sector work. That's not to say we don't do any private sector work. There definitely is some, but definitely much more on kind of the public health side. Um, I think as the industry starts to evolve, you're going to see a lot of you know, non-traditional, if you will, players that are going to enter the market. If you think about, you know, the Ubers and the startups and those types of individuals, not individuals, organizations getting into the health space, I think you're going to see a lot more of these kind of third-party private players, particularly as the industry moves towards, shifts towards more kind of a wellness-based model. So if you think about things like wearables and individuals that are, you know, leveraging wearables or, you know, life insurance companies, all these types of things, I think are really going to start to emerge as we shift to kind of a wellness focus and out of kind of a very acute reactive healthcare model. Um, and then I think as a result of that, a lot of our work, not a lot of our work, but our work will shift um, to be more involved with private players and with those kind of third party, uh, as you were mentioning before, kind of tech organizations, uh, whether it be through uh, our advising them or our partnership with them, I think they'll start to play a bigger role in the Canadian health system. Yeah, I think uh, based on the insights report as well, uh, Deloitte really is looking towards a holistic approach to healthcare, where, whether it's uh, physical health, mental health, and really being proactive towards individuals' health rather than mm -hmm. reactive, as you said. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's applicable in both the private and public health side. And I was interested to know just your perspective. What are some things we can do to increase uh, adoption of potential technologies uh, that people might be able to use to improve their health? And do you think people will be more willing to use wearables, use different applications in the future? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that I think the first hurdle that you need to overcome for people to use it is really the privacy and security challenge. I think that um, whether it be true or not, there's a lot of folks that have you know hesitation towards that, you know, leveraging wearables, for instance, because they're worried about what's going on with their data, how individuals are going to access their data, that type of thing. Um, and I think that that needs to kind of be addressed and those concerns eased in order for folks to want to, you know, leverage it and utilize it. Uh, I think that COVID really did help accelerate the use of technology. I think that, you know, some, you know, maybe clinicians, organizations that were hesitant to use such as, you know, things such as virtual care technologies, um, when forced to in a COVID world, they were, you know, they saw the benefits of it and they, you know, were able to adopt it. So I think that that's a, a big piece of it. Um, I think that it's very easy to kind of attach a, a technology or you know, a wearable, for instance, to a benefit, and then it drives adoption. So for instance, uh, my husband has a life insurance policy and they gave him an Apple Watch. And if he wears it and they're able to track his exercise and his fitness, his premiums adjust based on his fitness level. And if he does certain things like gets you know, his blood work done or whatever it is, his premiums adjust. So for him, there's a benefit associated with using a wearable that has him doing it and it's actually helping contribute to his health because he's now you know visiting a doctor more often to get his blood work and now he's worried about his step count and all these things that help from a wellness perspective that's just attached to an insurance policy um, and a premium so i think there's lots of ways for kind of third party players and private players to incentivize the use of wearables to enhance kind of wellness and i think that um, if you attach it to some sort of incentive then it'll help drive that behavior positively um, I also think, you know, that's from kind of the end user side, but a big challenge from a technology piece is also, you know, the clinician side of it um, and trying to ensure the adoption from the providers as well. And I think that, you know, from a change management perspective, getting clinicians and organizations involved in any sort of development or planning or anything like that for a technology really helps drive adoption because then they can see you know what the benefits are that it's not going to you know really mess up their workflows that it's not going to significantly impact their you know day-to-day -day in a negative way then they can start to see the benefits and the outcomes and how it's going to you know not only help the patient but them as well so i think that getting kind of clinicians and organizations involved as early on in the front end is really critical to ensure that, you know, not only patients are adopting it, but clinicians are and providers are as well. So we're touching on a lot of big technology changes that are, are coming in the future that uh, should hopefully be fixated and be adopted and be a, a big player moving forward. 
Uh, and you especially touched on how the uh, demand for health transformation and digital care will be much larger in the future going forward as a result of the mm -hmm. pandemic. What would you say would be the biggest, uh, maybe po not positive outcome, but biggest change in uh, how the healthcare is done from a digital standpoint or uh, a transformation standpoint moving forward? Biggest change, it's a loaded question. Yeah, just um, the, the biggest game changer that's on its way that hasn't truly fixated yet. That's a big question. Oh, um, <laughs> that's okay, it's a great question. Um, I think that, I mean, we've talked about technology, we've talked about the shift towards wellness and, um, you know, pushing care more into kind of the preventative side of it. Um, I think that there is, you know, two, two big, I don't know if they're game changer pieces or unexpected pieces, but two big components that I think um, are kind of imminently coming down the pipeline. The first is really just health system integration. Um, I think that we've already kind of started that with, you know, the implementation of health information systems um, kind of more broadly. If you think about the Ottawa Hospital, um, you know, what the Central East Cluster is doing, like groups of organizations coming together to try to have an integrated um, patient record. So I think we're already starting to see the movement there, but I think that there will really be a push towards integration um, of data sources, integration of care, um, not only within kind of hospitals and connecting hospitals, but really beyond into the community as well. Um, and I think that will start, we'll start seeing that kind of much more broadly across, you know, provinces and across the country, which I think, you know, going to the second piece, having this kind of broader integration, particularly with the community, will really start to push care into community settings. So allowing that integration between community and hospitals will allow a lot more of that kind of preventative and wellness care being conducted in the community and then using the four walls of the hospital to really focus on only what it needs to be. So a lot of folks access the health system through the emergency room, which like isn't how everyone should be accessing the health system, right? There should be ability to access within the community um, and there should be preventative and all that, you know, wellness stuff that we've been talking about. So having that broader integration with the community and hospitals and outside of the health sector as well, if you think about social determinants of health and you think about the importance of, you know, education and nutrition and all these other components that aren't, you know, today traditionally thought of as within the health sector, the ability to integrate more into the community and more into these other sectors will really allow for a push towards kind of more health and wellness and that type of thing. Um, and I think that that will largely be driven, <clears throat> excuse me, by technology. Um, for instance, if you think about, there's a Deloitte video that we use sometimes to, you know, really show the impact that technologies could have in the health sector. And, you know, why is it not possible for if there is a, you know, poor air quality alert on the weather network, why is it not possible for then a clinician to get an alert saying there's a poor air quality alert, here's your five patients that have asthma, and you should remind them to refill their puffers and whatever it is. And then the clinician knows here's the three people I need to focus on today, and I should let them know that, you know, to do these things why can't it be that simple that it's just a technology push that's connected more broadly outside the health sector to weather alerts or what have you? Um, that was a very long answer. but uh, I think that the biggest push is going to be really integration. Um, and I really hope it is at least integration, you know, not only within the health sector, but, you know, very much beyond it in order to influence health outcomes. I think that's a really great answer. And uh, just going to my personal experience, I think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done in the integration of data side. And just looking at my where I go for my family physician, they only transferred their medical records to computers like three or four years ago. So now when I go back and try to get my old like asthma records, they have to go back to the paper records. So it's, it all of that makes get accessing your health, accessing your own data, which is should be your own property difficult. And um, mm. just looking into the future, uh, what are some challenges to try to implement some of these uh, data integration or uh, tools that can be used to really improve the healthcare system and try to convince the government to invest in these technologies? What are some challenges? Yeah, yeah. it's a great question. I think, uh, as I said before, the privacy security is a big issue that I think folks have. Um, and I think that you need to really, you know, address those concerns and ensure that it is, um, you know, fully handled, I suppose, for lack of a better term, um, would really be step one. I think that's, you know, probably the biggest barrier you have. Um, I think that another challenge is really just the disparate needs of the different organizations that are out there. So if you think about a large 
you know, University Row Hospital, if you think about, you know, Sick Kids or Princess Margaret or something, the needs of that are going to be very different than, you know, a Renfrew or a Halliburton Highlands. Um, there's very different, you know, populations, there's very different kind of um, budgets, you know, there's all kinds of different disparate needs of the organization. So trying to bring everyone onto kind of one common solution is always a challenge, um, specifically when you have, you know, very different uh, regions and populations in, you know, Ontario as well as in Canada. So I think somehow kind of aligning those needs would be, you know, really critical if you wanted to have one entire solution between organizations. Um, I think even if you don't get every single person on, you know, one common data platform, there's definitely advantages to having it kind of regionally done, which I think is the movement that we're seeing so far as well. Um, I think that it's really critical when coming up with any sort of, you know, data strategy or analytics approach to really think about what the organization wants to get out of the data. So just having data for data sake is not overly helpful. Um, so really understanding, you know, what, what, um, what insights you want to be able to get from it and what um, analytics you want to kind of run with it and how you want to be able to manipulate it um, is really critical when putting in a kind of data foundation just collecting data and having it sit there is really not really helpful. So clearly there is a lot of information and different functional areas. And based on what you're saying, a lot of developments that work into your role, I'm sure it keeps you busy, uh, busy throughout your role. Um, but while working at Deloitte, you also did some pro bono consulting for not-for-profit organizations. Mm -hmm. What motivates you to get involved with that sort of thing? And what would you say you got out of it? Yeah, it's a really great question. So um, kind of the two main pieces I've done kind of outside of the firm in my, you know, short five year career. The first was really uh, pro bono consulting, which was actually done through the firm. So we have a, I guess, arm of the firm that is kind of our pro bono arm. And uh, it was called CAP Community Advisory Projects. I think they may have changed the name now, but you can kind of put your hand up to get involved in a not for profit uh, kind of uh, consulting engagement to support an organization um, and I really wanted to not only find a way to give back to a cause that I found that I cared about but and to leverage kind of my skills to do that um, but I also thought it was important for me to you know do something outside of kind of my day-to-day -day digital health work um, I think that it's very easy to just live in your consulting world and it, the hours can be long and it can be demanding. So I really wanted to actively try to, you know, build a piece of, you know, my career and, you know, my life outside of just the, the team. Um, so that's kind of why I really wanted to get involved in it. And it happened to be for an organization that I was particularly um, passionate about. It was around kind of uh, women's education uh, and empowerment, um, which is a cause that I'm, you know, Quite close to my heart so it was it kind of just lined up really well for me um i think for me what i really got out of it was that it it really it really validated my passion for consulting in general i think that you know when it's your job day in day out sometimes you can lose sight of that but you know doing it on a voluntary basis um kind of outside of your you know regular work really allowed me to have an impact in a way that I, you know, may forget that I do in my job. And so it was really great to be able to, you know, help an organization, help a cause, um, and really use my skills to do it. So I found it really validating, which was really nice. Um, and then the other piece that I did was I was the chair uh, for the Emerging Leader Forum. So it's a, Emerging Leader Forum is a, again, a not-for-profit group uh, really focused at supporting uh, individuals in the beginning of their career, you know, and providing them with an opportunity to network, to learn, to collaborate uh, through kind of a series of different events. Uh, so I got involved with that in shortly after I graduated, actually, and then eventually became the chair of it, uh, which I was for about a year. And it was a really great way for me to build my network outside of the firm. Uh, again, I think it's really easy to um, kind of just get stuck in your kind of little bubble. So it really was a great way for me to try to expand past my uh, bubble and make connections with folks outside of kind of my firm and my clients, which was really great. Um, 
it, we had just such amazing people on the team. We have folks that are now directors at Shoppers and folks that have gone to Omer's and really a great group of individuals, but also the speakers that we had. So we had, you know, Young Lee, who used to be a partner at Deloitte. He was at Grand River, now he's at North York General. Uh, we had Dave Denoff, who's a director at PwC. Um, so really some fantastic speakers that you can, you know, learn from and can network, uh, can network with as well and form those connections. So overall, I found it incredibly, um, incredibly helpful to my career. And I think in the first few years of my career, it's, you know, if you want to get involved in something kind of at an executive or board level, it can certainly be challenging when you have limited experience. Um, so this was a great way for me to be able to get involved at that level um, and, you know, not only help other emerging leaders, but you know myself as an emerging individual. So um, those were kind of the two pieces I did, and I think both gave me different, different. I got different things out of both of them, but um, both I'm very happy I did. So also on kind of that extracurricular note, uh, during your career you got a uh, Six Sigma Yellow Belt certification and some other certifications from the Institute of, for Healthcare Improvement. Uh, are there any skills that you feel like you've picked up from uh, those? certifications outside of work or, or is there any anything you've picked up that you feel really helped you in your current consulting role or helped you progress to a higher level? That's a really good question um, and I feel like I don't have a great answer for you because uh, not really. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Yeah so I did uh, I've done like a several as you can see kind of certifications outside of my MBA it was I've not I haven't done much uh, you know that's major like I don't have a PMP or anything like that um, and I don't think that there's any specific skill sets I learned in any of those that I found particularly helpful. Um, I think um, I think the thing that's been most helpful to me uh, truly is just the work experience and gaining kind of that hands-on um, experience within, you know, different consulting projects. Um, in terms of what's made me kind of successful at the firm and in kind of moving up through the ranks, um, I think that having a broad range of experiences was certainly one of them. Uh, I've worked with a variety of leaders within the firm and a you know variety of clients really from one end to the other. And I think that having that broad range is, is quite helpful. Um, you know, it gives me a solid foundation of different skill sets that I can apply, but also really helps build your network because you work with different leaders, you work with different teams. So you really are kind of well known across, which I think has been um, quite helpful. Um, and then it all kind of ties back to the soft skills, I suppose, um, that I mentioned earlier. So um, you know, the ability to work hard even when it's not fun and sometimes it's late and sometimes you don't want to do it and the ability to kind of push through that I think goes a long way. Um, the ability to work well on a team and truly care about your team I think is something that goes a long way as well. As I said, we do everything in a team and we're, you know, very much a, not to sound cliche, but a family and so caring about others I think people really recognize that and uh, it is definitely kind of acknowledged and rewarded as you kind of move up. Um, yeah, I know that's not super helpful for your answer your question. No, no that's that's interesting. The uh, the perspective you give there. I'm sure Deloitte has a lot of uh, development programs and everything within the organization that really help grow your skills. So it makes yeah. sense that a big organization like that would be able to provide you everything you need to grow as a professional. Yeah, they absolutely do. And the firm, um, I think, does a really great job of that. I think learning and development and growth is really key to the firm. I mean, most of most of the firm's business is just smart people. Um, so continuing to make sure that everyone's growing and developing and, you know, leveling up, if you will, is really critical to you know, the firm's success. So they have, uh, we have Deloitte University and we have milestones. So every time you get to a new level, you go to a milestone school and you spend a week learning about what that level is and networking with other people that just made to that level. You're given a career coach when you come in um, who helps kind of guide you through your career and help you navigate the firm and help you with, you know, certain development opportunities you need. Um, the list really does go on. So the firm provides a lot of supports. It's really just up to you as an individual to kind of put your hand up and ask for them and uh, try to take advantage of those opportunities. Yeah, I think that's, uh, especially with consulting, the idea of uh, continuous growth and development is really great. And especially working in the healthcare field, uh, now that COVID has happened and a lot of realization has happened throughout the uh, space on improvements that can be made. It's, uh, it's a great, it's a great thing. And I think 
healthcare consulting will only increase in demand in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, just to, just hope to, so. let's hope so, right? Yeah. So um, just closing off the episode, uh, I'd love to just uh, maybe get uh, one thing you're really optimistic about that Deloitte is working on and uh, maybe some last advice for some of our listeners. And I think that'd be a great way to end this, uh, this show. Yeah, um, so I'm optimistic about lots of things that I feel like we've touched on kind of quite a few of them. But I think what I'm most optimistic about is really the ability to, unsurprisingly, uh, leverage technology to really enhance outcomes. I think there's so much opportunity there, whether, I mean, we've touched on all of it already. But if you think about wearables, if you think about data and analytics, if you think about just health information systems that connect organizations at a very fundamental level, I think there's so much opportunity and, you know, the sector can tend to lag behind, which, you know, you can either think about that as unfortunate or you can look at it kind of glass half full and look how much opportunity there is and how far we can really pull it. Um, so I think that's it's going to be really exciting to see, uh, particularly the impact that COVID is going to have and how far the, the industry can really accelerate and we can take the momentum and continue to push forward um, to enhance really just population health and outcomes for everyone in Ontario and in Canada. Um, so I'm excited to be part of it, hopefully. Um, and then last advice. So I think that I said it before, but there's lots of folks that are willing to help um, for sure um, and willing to share their insights and willing to kind of chat with you. Uh, people are really, for the most part, I found, you know, really supportive and really want to help people in the early parts of their career myself included. So I would say, don't be afraid to reach out to individuals. Don't be afraid to try to add them on LinkedIn, ask for a coffee chat. When you have a coffee chat, ask for someone else they can then connect you with um, because it, it actually goes a really long way. A lot of the folks that we've had come into the team from DeGroot are folks that had met with the team in advance, usually through either a networking event or just randomly messaged on LinkedIn. And then they managed to have several chats with folks in the team. Um, so I think that you know, just reaching out would be be super helpful. Um, just in general to try to get a position, I think that I would, um, I'd really encourage you to do that. And then I think kind of broadly in when trying to figure out which place or organization or area that you want to end up, um, for me, at least what really drew me was the culture. So as a fresh graduate, lots of positions and lots of organizations would have been a great learning opportunity for me. Um, but really what I ended up settling on was an, an organization that had a culture that really spoke to me and a culture that um, I really just didn't want to leave at the end of the co-op. I really just fell in love with it. So if you can find an organization or a place where, you know, forget about the job title, the actual culture of the organization is something that really appeals to you, whether it's, you know, the work-life balance or integration component, whether it's the learning piece, whether it's the mentorship that's provided, whatever it is that really you know, aligns with your wants in a career, I would, I would really focus on that type of thing versus um, a title or a specific, um, you know, organization. So I think that, you know, we've all heard culture eat strategy for breakfast, but I actually think that culture is super important. Um, and it'll really help you in the first few years of your career. Yeah, we can definitely tell from all the uh, fantastic insights you've brought today that you are definitely one of those people that is willing to help out with uh, someone's career. And we really appreciate you coming on the show today. You had some great points. It was a great discussion. And I think our listeners are going to find it all really interesting. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, we thank Kirsten for that wonderful interview we just had. And now it is time for the Healthcare Hub Startup Spotlight. This week, I'm going to take a look at a company that's been playing a role in digital health transformation long before the pandemic began. Atonix is the company behind the A Touch Away platform, a platform that specializes in virtual communication for patients, remote patient monitoring, care plan management, and clinical workflows. And they've been on my radar for a while. I first came across Atonix at the 2019 OCE Discovery Conference in Toronto. It's a conference filled with innovative startup businesses and incubators and academic incubation institutions. I'm not too sure if they, uh, they did anything for the conference last year because uh, pandemic, <laughs> but I'm sure once it's safe to take place in person again, it is a, it's a great place to go to see an intersection for all areas of innovation. So I attended the conference while I was working with Alex from the Rick Center, who we spoke with last episode, and I was doing some research on how successful startups begin. 
So as part of that, I came across Michelle Paquette, the CEO and founder of Atonix. We chatted for a bit and I learned about the platform and even told me an interesting story about how he found this boy genius in his spare time that, and those were his words, not mine, that was a software engineer that never had been to university and he found him to be his CTO and it paid off because Atonix is doing very well to this day. So that was just a funny story I remembered while I was doing research on this company for the spotlight. But we've talked a lot about the need for digitization in remote care during the pandemic. So this was a tool that was ready for action before this all began. What makes Atonix's platform a touch away so interesting is that it integrates patients, caregivers and family members and healthcare providers into one digital ecosystem where they can all collaborate and communicate. So depending on how reliant patients or sometimes seniors in a nursing home are on their family members or caregivers, those caregivers will also be able to download the app and be able to be involved in the caregiving experience. The platform allows clinicians to send care plans to patients and their family, so both the healthcare provider and the family can monitor their progress. This also helps hospital administrators equip their staff to easily be able to reach out to those in need so that they can get the care they need when they need it. And the platform also has video call capabilities, so patients or seniors who haven't seen their family in a while, especially during the pandemic, they're able to get in touch with their loved ones. And there's a secure messaging service on there that between caregivers and the patients and the clinicians so they can all communicate with each other. Finally, Atonix also provides kits with wearable devices that track the vitals of these patients and all that data is stored on the platform in real time. That way uh, you can be alarmed of any changes in the vitals of those patients if you are a family member or a healthcare provider and you can get a response to them quickly. Then there's also a lot of features for healthcare providers, including a dashboard with patient history, risk stratification, and much more. So it's all overall a really cool system that integrates a lot of patient monitoring and communication into one place. It's currently used globally in over 250 hospitals and 10,000 patients. So it's clearly proven effective. Uh, so yeah, overall, a very interesting platform. Do you have any thoughts on that, Abinev? Yeah, I think this platform definitely reminds me a little bit of Aliacare, which we talked about uh, a few episodes ago. And it'll be interesting to see how, uh, what types of features they offer and what kind of product differentiation they're really trying to go for. I mean, Aliacare has seen massive growth over the last two years. So it'll be interesting to see uh, this, this product and how this company continues moving forward. Uh, in general, I think the idea of being able to uh, create a more effective digitized, digitalized solution for um, managing and recording clinical workflows and clinical records uh, in, as you mentioned, long-term care homes or nursing homes uh, is important and it'll change the way things are currently done. So a really great company for bringing out today, Tyler, and uh, looking forward to hearing more about it. Yeah, I think uh, it's interesting to follow the fact that they had that personable touch, able to video call your, your family members and your care providers in isolation. So a nice uh, nice feature of Atonics there. But that does wrap up our startup spotlight for this week. Thank you so much. And that wraps up the episode itself as well. So thank you so much for listening to episode seven of the Healthcare Hub podcast. Uh, Abin, have any closing thoughts? No, that sounds good to me, Tyler. Perfect. Okay. Well, we're going to see you all in the next one. Have a great week, everybody. Mm-hmm.